welcome to Audio Scrambler, a podcast about music. I'm Bob Waller. This summer marks the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love, a time when somewhere between 50 and 100,000 young people converged on San Francisco to smoke pot, drop acid, protest the war in Vietnam, tap into some unconditional sex, pursue enlightenment, trip out to psychedelic music, and ultimately signify to the world that the budding new hippie generation was a force to be reckoned with. In the last episode of Audio Scrambler, we looked at how some high-profile musical experimentation of 1966 paved the way for the summer of love. In this episode, we'll see how that spirit of freedom and innovation spread like wildfire as we look at 1967 directly. And the way we'll do that is through... 10 far-out facts about the summer of love. Far out fact number one. The summer of love kind of started in the winter. Despite the romantic notion that the summer of love was a spontaneous harmonic convergence caused by the alignment of stars in the age of Aquarius, the mass influx of hippies to San Francisco was actually a planned process that took place over several months. The song you're hearing right now is Viola Lee Blues, as recorded by the Grateful Dead in January of 1967 at an event called The Human Bean. The Human Bean was held in Golden Gate Park on January 14th and drew somewhere between 20 and 30,000 hippies who had come to hear speakers like Beat Generation Literati, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Proponents of Eastern spirituality, Alan Watts and Richard Alpert, later known as Ramdas, comedian slash civil rights activist Dick Gregory, and LSD guru Timothy Leary, who enjoined the crowd to turn on, tune in, and drop out. The event included musical performances by the Grateful Dead, who again we've been hearing in the background, as well as the Jefferson Airplane. Don't you want somebody to love? Quicksilver Messenger Service. And Blue Cheer. The Human Bean was the first high-profile San Francisco-based hippie gathering of its scale, and as noted, it happened in the winter. It was so successful that in the spring of 1967, a committee formed to further plan the systematic convergence of hippies in San Francisco. And that committee was called the Committee for the Summer of Love. Far out fact number two, this song. If you're going to San Francisco. Was essentially a jingle. That's right, although anti-commercialism was a central tenet of the summer of love, this song, titled San Francisco, parentheses, be sure to wear flowers in your hair, here performed by Scott McKenzie, was written as a kind of advertisement for the summer of love by John Phillips, best known as a singer, songwriter, and guitarist for this band. That's the Mamas and the Papas as they sounded at the Summer of Love's most celebrated musical event, the Monterey Pop Festival, which featured dozens of performances by now household names like Jefferson Airplane, Love, 
Simon and Garfunkel. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring Janis Joplin on lead vocals. Down on me, down on me. The Birds. Was a friend of mine. Otis Redding. Good God Almighty, I love, I love you, baby. The Who. The Grateful Dead. Run me out in the cold rain and snow. The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Let me stand next to your fire. And of course, the Mamas and the Papas. All the leaves are brown, leaves are brown. Who naturally invited Scott McKenzie onto the stage to sing his big hit, the John Phillips written song, San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. by the way, was one of the organizers of the Monterey Pop Festival. So while he may have had some very pure interests in promoting the Summer of Love, he also clearly had some professional interests in it. Because the best way to make his Monterey Pop Festival a success would be to get as many hippies to come to San Francisco as possible. And a great way to do that was to write a hit song encouraging them to do so. And as a special bonus far-out fact about San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Despite its gentle, slow-paced groove, Phillips claimed to have written it in 20 minutes while hopped up on speed. Far-out fact number three, the Jimi Hendrix experience was kind of a British act. I know, I know, Jimi Hendrix is an American legend, I get that. But at the time of this recording... He was nearly unknown in his own country. This is Hey Joe, as recorded by the Jimi Hendrix Experience at the Monterey Pop Festival, their first major American appearance. Before then, their success had been based almost solely in London, where Hendrix formed the Jimi Hendrix Experience in 1966 with bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell, both of whom were Brits, and where they were spotted by Paul McCartney, bassist for the Beatles, who recommended the Jimi Hendrix Experience to Beatles press agent Derek Taylor, one of John Phillips' co-organizers for the Monterey Pop Festival. Another British band that was fairly unknown in the U.S. and that Paul McCartney recommended for Monterey was this band. That's The Who performing My Generation. It's the song they used to close their set at Monterey. And as it ended, Pete Townsend famously smashed his guitar while Keith Moon kicked over his drum set and explosions went off all over the stage. If you ever get a chance to watch the film footage, it's kind of amusing. Apparently, stage personnel did not know that the Who were going to do this, and you can see them rushing to the stage in a frenzy to try to save their expensive microphones and other state-of-the-art equipment. It must have scared the bejeepers out of them. And by many accounts, it also scared Jimi Hendrix, albeit in a different way. Because by many reports, Hendrix and The Who had developed a kind of friendly rivalry by this time. They admired each other, but neither band wanted to be outdone by the other. 
Both acts were scheduled to perform at Monterey on Saturday night, and by backstage accounts, they tossed a coin for the right to choose who would go first. The Who won the toss and chose to go on before Hendrix. That way, if Hendrix wowed the crowd, they, the Who, would not pale in comparison. So when the Who enraptured the crowd with the sights and sounds of explosions and destroyed instruments, naturally, Hendrix was a little concerned. But by all accounts, he put in a stellar performance, and in the end, not to be outdone by the Who, smashed his own guitar and set it on fire. The image of Hendrix kneeling and gyrating suggestively in front of his guitar has become iconic, and rock fans on both sides of the Atlantic now agree that both The Who and Hendrix are bona fide rock legends. And your special bonus Who Hendrix related fire out fact here is that the band that performed between The Who and Hendrix at Monterey was The Grateful Dead. A band that, by their own admission, is one of the most famously shoegazing bands ever. Members of the Dead have subsequently stated that being sandwiched between The Who and Hendrix virtually guaranteed that their performance at Monterey would not be remembered. As Grateful Dead bassist Phil Lesh once put it, We have a tradition of blowing the big ones. Far out fact number four. The band that spent the greatest number of weeks in the number one position on the Billboard singles charts in 1967 was The Monkees. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. That's right. By some measures, the most popular band of 1967 was a prefabricated boy band created by a corporation for a children's television show. The Monkees' undeniable popularity made it difficult for the organizers of the Monterey Pop Festival to ignore them, especially considering that some of the Monkees were now identifying themselves with the hippie movement. Not to mention the fact that the Monkees had just won a hard fight for the right to write their own songs and perform instruments on their albums. In their way, the Monkees were sticking it to the man, which sounds like a pretty hippie thing to do. But in the end, the Monkees were deemed not quite hippie enough. They were not invited to play the Monterey Pop Festival, although Monkey's banjo player Peter Tork was there to introduce Lou Rawls they said this is a big, rich town. and his then-favorite band, Buffalo Springfield. Stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look, it's going down. And Monkey singer Mickey Dolenz attended the festivities in costume versions of Native American buckskins and headdress. Fire out fact number five. The only performer to be paid by the Monterey Pop Festival was Indian sitarist Ravi Shankar. Other performers got nothing more than a reimbursement for their travel expenses, but Shankar got paid $3,000. To make up for the disparity, he played a set that was four hours long, more than eight times longer than the average Monterey performance. The reason nobody else got paid is that the Monterey Pop Festival was a charity event. Which leads to your bonus pay-related far-out fact. Early rock and roll legend Chuck Berry was reportedly invited to the Monterey Pop Festival, but when he found out it was a charity event, replied, the only charity Chuck Berry plays for is Chuck Berry. 
Fire out fact number six. Although the Monterey Pop Festival was the largest and most high-profile pop festival to date, many performers declined the invitation. These include Bob Dylan. Pack up your money, pull up your tents, McGuinn. You ain't going nowhere. Who was recovering from a motorcycle accident. The Beach Boys. I'm picking up whose creative leader Brian Wilson was coping with a mental health condition called schizoaffective disorder, which made him agoraphobic, unable to fly, and terrified of large crowds. And then there was the Mothers of Invention, whose leader Frank Zappa refused to play with San Francisco bands which he considered to be artistically inferior. Not to mention Motown acts like the Supremes, Gladys Knight, The Temptations, and Marvin Gaye, who were prohibited from playing the Monterey Pop Festival by Motown Records founder Barry Gordy. It's unknown whether the Beatles were ever invited to the Monterey Pop Festival, but it's generally accepted that by this time their music had become too complicated to perform live. Certain other acts couldn't get American work visas. These included the Kinks, who were in a heated dispute with the American Federation of Musicians, as well as Donovan. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is... And the Rolling Stones, who were fighting charges for possession of illegal narcotics. Far out fact number seven. Of all the acts to play the Monterey Pop Festival, the one that ranked highest on the Billboard singles charts at the time was The Association. And Wendy has stormy eyes that flash at the sound of lies. This is the super soft single Wendy by the super soft pop band The Association. As you can hear, it's a little hard to guess what criteria might have been used to determine that the monkeys weren't hippie enough for the Monterey Pop Festival, but the association was. And your bonus association-related far-out fact is that Raymond Zarek, keyboardist for The Doors, who later in the summer of 1967 had a number one hit with this song, subsequently declared, we were quite angry wondering why the association was at the Monterey Pop Festival and the doors were not. Which leads to far out fact number eight. The summer of love was a summer of mismatched double headers. Because after Monterey, the doors opened for Simon and Garfunkel. Imagine this band. opening for this band. And while you're at it, imagine this band. Opening for this band. Because that's what happened. 
Believe it or not, in July of 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience briefly went on tour with the Monkees. As you could imagine, things did not go very well. Parents who had paid for their 13-year-old daughters to see a bubblegum boy band were incensed to learn that their children had been exposed to Hendrix's distorted psychedelic guitar and suggestive pelvic gyrations. As for the Monkees' audiences, they were completely oblivious to Hendrix's musical genius. According to some accounts, Hendrix once tried to get a Monkees' audience to sing along to this song. Ooh, foxy lady. This is Hendrix's hit, Foxy Lady, but the Monkees' audience responded by singing Foxy Davy, a reference to the Monkees' diminutive British pinup boy, Davy Jones. The humiliation was more than Hendrix could take, and on the seventh night of the tour, well before the tour was supposed to end, he reportedly gave the middle finger to the teeny boppers and never set foot on a monkey stage again. Far out fact number nine, despite its obvious success, many declared the Summer of Love to be a great failure. Although the Summer of Love is often regarded as the watershed period that popularized the underground values of peaceful protests, sexual liberation, and freedom of expression, not everybody saw it in such a positive light. San Francisco and Monterey city officials claimed the Summer of Love had not only given their communities a bad name, but had cost the public a fortune in law enforcement, sanitation, public health, and penal expenses. Many hippies themselves believed that the Summer of Love had strayed radically from its objectives, forsaking mind expansion for wanton drug abuse, free love for sexual hedonism, and communal sharing for commercialism. Notable commercial aberrations associated with the Summer of Love include hippie kits, which sold for $4, included things like feathers, flowers, headbands, and incense, and promised to transform the wearer into an instant hippie. And the Hippie Hop, a bus tour that carried tourists through San Francisco's infamous Haight-Ashbury district to gawk shamelessly at its countercultural inhabitants. Sort of a lion country safari, but with hippies. By fall of 67, many who had advocated the Summer of Love were now yearning for its death knell. And so, on the morning of October 6th, 1967, a group of tired and somewhat disillusioned hippies famously gathered in San Francisco's Buena Vista Park for a mock procession advertised as a funeral service for, quote, hippie, devoted son of mass media, end quote. And in so doing, ritually signified to the world that the summer of love was decidedly over. Out fact number 10. Whether we consider the Summer of Love to have been a failure or a success, it's hard to deny that it really did have a far-reaching and long-lasting effect. While the Summer of Love fell radically short of its goals of universal peace and enlightenment, it really does seem like some things changed in 1967. Many claim that the hippies of 67 really did eventually bring about the end of the war in Vietnam and many claim that they set the tone for all subsequent liberal politics. I was watching the telly the other night, let me tell you what it was about. 
As for me, I was only a year and a half old at the time of the Summer of Love, far too young to have been part of the original hippie generation, but I have friends even younger than me who consider themselves to be hippies. I personally gravitated toward punk culture and in younger years naively believed that we punks were the antithesis of the hippies, but over time came to think differently. The idea of rebellion through rock, well that came from the hippies of 67. And when I hear songs like this, we are volunteers of America, volunteers of America, volunteers of America, volunteers of America. This is Volunteers by Jefferson Airplane. It's pretty clear that the music of my generation was strongly influenced by the music of the hippies. I mean, this is essentially a punk song. At the very least, I think it's safe to say that the hippie movement eventually caused the larger American culture to develop a greater understanding and appreciation for freedom of expression. One world, one people. I'm just barely old enough to remember a time when men with long hair and beards were regarded as deviants, at least by most people where I grew up. But I realized how much things have changed earlier this summer when I attended the wedding of my 75-year-old father in my hometown of Newport Ritchie, a conservative retirement town on the west coast of Florida. My dad, by the way, was by no means a hippie. He's a barbershop singer Sweet with a vinyl collection that includes the greatest hits of Mitch Miller Andy Williams. Moon River, wider than a mile. I'm crossing you in style someday. But as he and his bride stood there at the altar of his low-key Lutheran church, the pastor who officiated their ceremony was a man with a ponytail, a beard, and an earring. A one world. The main songs you heard for Far Out Facts number 9 and 10 were His Great Escape and One World, One People by my good friend William Mylar. William, or Bill as most of us call him, is well known in the Sacramento area where I live for fronting Mylar's Hippie Hour, a regular musical event that is partially a showcase for Bill's formidable talents and partially a jam where all are welcome. It is truly eclectic and inclusive in the spirit of 67. Special thanks to Bill for letting me use these songs and for letting me record this episode of Audio Scrambler in his home studio while my own home studio was in a shambles because of a recent move. You can find out more about Bill and his music by going to mylarville.com. That's M-Y-L-A-R-V-I-L-L-E.com. Until next time, I'm Bob Waller reminding you to turn on, tune in, and keep listening because the more you listen, the more you love. It's time to live in peace too